Welcome to another episode of This is HCD, coming to you direct from the city where dreams are made, New York City. I'm your host, Chi Ryan, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Joey Zeladen, an award-winning designer with a background in product design, experience design, and design strategy. Throughout his career, Joey has designed everything from footwear and electronics to packaged goods, products, medical devices, housewares, food, services, and spaces. Currently a principal at Steelcase, Joey creates meaningful experiences by innovating healthcare spaces and furniture. In the past, he has collaborated with organizations and brands including American Express, Banana Republic, Bayer Healthcare, Gatorade, Google, New Balance, Revlon, and many more. Joey also serves as a creative director for Mothership, a nonprofit startup focused on empathy-based healthcare, and he co-founded the Smart Food Lab at Smart Design, which explores the intersection of food design and healthy behaviors. Joey recently wrote a book called Touchy Feely, in which he explores emotional ergonomics. Through his illustrations of human interactions with objects and the corresponding emotional responses, Joey puts a truly unique spin on the way we interact with the things around us and how to design for all the touches and all the feels. Joey and I are going to talk about what inspired the book and what inspires him as a designer. Let's get touchy feely. Welcome to the show, Joey. Hey. I can't help but want to make it. Hey, I, I can't help but want to make a joke about the name Touchy Feely. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't blame you. I think it's just good timing. It's funny because I don't know. I always thought that the term Touchy Feely was quite well known, but I mentioned it to a few people that I work with, and they were like, "I've never heard of Touchy Feely before," which is interesting. It is because I thought it was a universal phrase, but huh? Yeah. It's universal to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) That's all that matters. Well, maybe that's a good starting point for us for today. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got the name for the book and perhaps how you got into human-centered design. Yeah, human-centered design and inclusive design. You know, we, as designers, that's been kind of a hot topic for at least a decade or two now. Um, You know, everyone claims to be a human-centered designer who is a designer by trade. And when you really kind of unpack that, you know, to design for humans is the opposite of designing for robots. You know, robots don't have emotions and feelings yet, but humans very much do, right? And I I know this is something that's been practiced uh, for years now, design. I think we just innately, intuitively do it as human designers and designing for our people, other humans, you know, we, we're full of emotions and feelings, um, you know, no matter what the circumstance or product we're using or context that we're living or interaction that we're having, that's chock full of emotions. And, you know, I, I haven't really found some kind of packaged together way to approach how to do that. And I think that was, really kind of the impetus for me creating this book for myself was coming up with some way to loosely quantify, you know, how to design for feelings, for emotions, because I think we're, we're so good at quantifying, you know, things, more technical things, functional things, things that have a number around it. Right. But, but emotions, how do you quantify emotions? Jeez, I, I don't know if this book really does it, but it's an attempt to at least get the conversation going. Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? how to quantify emotions. If we could do that, you know, we'd all be millionaires. Interestingly enough, it, it brings up the question for me, if not designing for humans, then who? Because that's what we do when we're designing. We're designing for people. But it seems like other things get in the way sometimes, uh, whether we're designing 
for business or yeah. for industry or for other things. I, you know, it seems like the human element sometimes gets extracted from that. And uh, the way that I like to put it is that you're not designing for you. Right. Uh, you're designing for other people. So sometimes I think that maybe it's not so much that we're not designing for humans, but we tend to design for ourselves. Yeah. A very, very selfish way of looking at things. <laughs> yeah, very much so. You're exactly right. I think in every design project, we know to look at whatever we're trying to design through the three lenses of the why, what, and how, or user desirability, or I know you don't like the word user, uh, <laughs> <laughs> human desirability, business viability, and technical feasibility. And I think you're exactly right that the human desirability lens somehow doesn't always come first or it's deprioritized. But to me, that's, that's crazy, I think, to you and to most designers, because if you're not hitting on the why, the human element, the feeling side, like if you don't have that desirability, what do you have? What do you, who cares if you can make it? Who cares? I mean, sure, you can definitely hit on the engineering side, how to make it, but I don't know if you're going to be making much money. So <laughs> it's a no-brainer, I think, to, to most designers. So maybe before we go any further, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are? I actually knew I wanted to be a, an industrial designer when I was, I think, 13 or 14 years old. And wow. actually, before that, I was eight years old when I determined I wanted to be a shoe designer. That was my, the start of my career at eight years old. What was inspiring that? Was it a particular type of shoe? or? Yeah, it was, I think at that time, and this was the early to mid-90s, where, you know, the Nike Air Max and Air Jordans, Air Griffies were really huge. And I would go shoe shopping with my mom for, you know, a new school year, late summer. And we would go into a Foot Locker, you know, other shoe stores in the mall. And I was just so obsessed with these artifacts, you know, and that emotional pull, you know, the fact that they were up on display on a wall, when in reality, you're going to be, they're going to be on the ground around your feet. I don't know, it's just this thing on a pedestal and the off-gassing, it smelled wonderful. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I totally understand because I'm a bit of a sneakerhead. And oh, so nice. I, I understand. And when I was around the same time, sort of early 90s, sneakers became a real thing. And, you know, I had the wings, the Michael Jordan wings poster in my bedroom. And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So, and funnily enough, shoe design and definitely Nike, maybe not shoe design so much, but definitely Nike. Although I did study shoe design at university and my great granddad, he was actually a shoe, he was a shoemaker. Is that right? Uh, yeah, totally, amazing. totally. So um, I think that there's something really amazing about the connection that we have to these things that we put on our feet and uh, it's a phenomena. I mean, did you watch the episode of Contrast with Tinker Hadfield? I did, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that was incredible. <laughs> that, was, that guy seems incredible, just so amazing, talented and, and just a cool guy. Yeah, totally. I, it's just amazing. I think that um, – just this way that people have connected over an object that we put on our feet and how the way that they define us as well. You know, you can tell so much from someone about the pair of sneakers that they have on. That's right. Oh, <laughs> completely. And, and also, like, speaking of human desirability, you know, putting these things on a wall, you know, up on a pedestal and telling these stories, you know, through, I guess, yeah, sure, marketing gimmicks. I mean... Are those air pockets really adding much value, you know, quantifiable 
improvement to your steps. I'm not sure. I don't know how much that's been proven, but it, it sure does pull at the heartstrings. Well, you know, I went into the Nike store here in New York the other day and they had the automatic lacing Nikes and oh, yeah. uh, I thought to myself, well, not really sure that that's adding anything to anyone's life. <laughs> But, you know, anyway, we could do a whole episode just about Nikes. But before we get back into your story, do you have a favorite pair? Oh, boy. Actually, I do. I have a favorite brand, and this is a company that I did work for, uh, Clark's. Uh, Their originals line, uh, I'm a huge fan of. They aren't sneakers, technically. They're more just your classic brown shoes, originally from England. But I just love the simplicity of those shoes and uh, the crepe outsoles, the natural rubber. Nice. I'm kind of a stickler for some of the Air Max, but the more obscure models. So I'm a big fan of, of structures or triacs. I have quite a few pairs. I won't go into how many because that would be, <laughs> that would be kind of gross. Um, but anyway, so getting back to your story. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I knew I wanted to be a shoe designer. And then one summer, my uncle asked me, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a shoe designer. And he said, all right, well, let's go on Nike's website and see what you have to study in, in school. And sure enough, it said product design or industrial design. And then right then and there, I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to school for. And it's funny, what happened, you know, luckily throughout school is I, of course, tried to spin every school project into some kind of footwear <laughs> innovation. So good. <laughs> yeah. And I became quickly became known as the shoe kid. But... In hindsight, all of my non-footwear projects ended up being my favorites because I think I started to learn more about myself, what I actually really loved, even more than being obsessed with this tangible artifact, is uh, storytelling and you know emotional storytelling. Footwear is one embodiment of that, but yeah, something inside of me was unlocked, you know, and a realization, I had an epiphany, which was that it wasn't so much about shoes, it was about the feeling that the shoes gave me and realizing that, hey, I can apply this to anything. And I didn't want to be just considered a one-trick pony. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, designing one type of thing throughout your career. That's a, you know, that's great if that's what you're into. But for me, I really wanted to have this blanket effect, you know, apply design process and, and this emotional storytelling to any industry. So I actually did end up becoming a professional shoe designer post-university for a couple of years. I was with Clark's in Boston, uh, their U.S. headquarters there. Uh, worked for on their Clark's Originals line and Banana Republic. And then I, I quickly realized, okay, I need to you know jump ship and, and move into something broader now before I get typecast. Because I think that is a real thing in, in our, our field. And so I, I moved on to... Um, Continuum in Boston, which is a design and innovation firm, uh, for four years. And then I also worked for four years at Smart Design in New York, doing similar things, you know, design consulting, uh, working on a number of categories, industries, uh, working alongside strategists, engineers, architects, interaction designers, service designers. I mean, it was just a, such a great experience for me, and it broadened my horizons immensely. And most recently, uh, for the last two years, I've been working for Steelcase in um, the furniture and spaces and healthcare, more specifically industry. So I, I then went from kind of more tabletop 
product to now entire spaces and a little bit more of architecture and furniture. So I've had quite a diverse background in design, um, usually something tangible at the center, but what I've loved and, and everything that I've done is tried, at least tried, to inject emotional storytelling and put it at, at the heart of whatever the narrative is supposed to be and really amping up that, that human desirability element. And I would say, in hindsight, the common thread throughout my career has really been you know, touchy-feely. It has been that, that emotional side to design. It's just I didn't realize it at the time. And, and I think now I'm just packaging it up in a, in a book. But it's something that I have been trying to practice for over a decade. Well, that's a great segue into what is touchy-feely. Maybe you want to tell us what that is to you. So touchy-feely to me is a loose framework for fostering empathy for human-centered and inclusive design. Another way to say touchy-feely is emotional ergonomics. And emotional ergonomics is a really a fancy way to say, and a very jargony way to say, how we feel as humans when we interact with the world around us, with the physical world, the sensorial world. And we know the term as designers in the industry, um, ergonomics, traditional ergonomics is the interaction between humans and the physical world, but through a much more functional and technical lens, right? So we, we ask ourselves, does this chair have the proper lumbar support? You know, how much, how much force do you need to twist open this jar? You know, give it to uh, an elderly person, it's more. Give it to a younger person, it's less. You know, it's, these are very quantifiable things that we learned in school. You know, we learned about the human body through, through numbers, angles, geometry, charts, graphs. But what wasn't really taught formally, at least when I was in school, was that emotional side to the physical world. And that, that is what touchy-feely is to me. Because after reading the book, I spent a lot of time thinking about what touchy-feely is to me. And again, right. it's a saying that I've known for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, the touchy-feelies. It can be used in both a positive or a negative way. Sure. And the way that I was explaining it to myself was that the touchy is the interaction and the feely is the emotion that you have as a result. And it's true, you can apply it to things that are tangible, but you can also apply it to things that are intangible. So Mm. I tend to design a lot of things that are less tangible or at least digital in some cases. And there's still a touchy component, even if it's not a physical touch, although sometimes it is, but say that it's the moment at which you come into contact with something, whether it be a system or a process, there's the touchy. And -hmm. then what you're left with afterwards, be it good, bad or otherwise, those emotional feelings that you have, that's the feely. That's my take on on how you can interpret it for different types of design. I couldn't agree more. I think you're you're exactly right. And and to be honest, I when I was writing this book, I definitely considered that, you know, the the intangible and uh though the name really does speak to the tangible, to me it's really a jumping off point. You could take it in multiple directions and it it is very applicable across industries and, and specialties in design. But think, you know, I think everything in every interaction, whether it's digital 
or anything else, it's always rooted in the physical world, right? Or rather, the gestural world, maybe, or the sensorial world. I don't know. But I really wanted to keep it as open-ended as possible. What was the very first time that you decided to go through this illustrative process with these touchy feelies? Was there one that got it all started? (laughs) Yes, actually, there was. Uh, So this was back in 2010-ish while I was working for Continuum in Boston. We were working on a project for a company where we were tasked with designing. it It was a new kitchen cleaning product for the Chinese market. And through research, we discovered that the human was actually more fearful of the the chemical in the cleaner than they were of the grime and the grease in their kitchen that they were trying to clean. And so after discovering that insight, we then began to ideate ways that we can remove that fear, right? Remove the fear of using this product because that was the current emotion. That was the current touchy-feely with this product. It was full of uh, fear and, you know, this idea of ingesting these these man-made or human-made chemicals was really terrifying to this person. And so how we did that was we started to look around the kitchen and, and pull from more of the, the natural, you know, natural cues, you know, in which coincidentally, of course, in the kitchen you have you have harsh chemicals when you clean, but but you also have food and, and 100% natural things that you cook and consume and eat. So we were looking at um, you know other way activation um, gestures, and the one the one that really uh, resonated at the time and really stuck with me was the pepper grinder. And so this gesture of of grinding you know pepper with this mechanism that most of us can relate to, you know we we took that and. Did a quick prototype of the cleaner, you know, and put it in this a pepper grinder, and um, <laughs> that simple act was like, wow, th- that really turned over this stone of new opportunity, you know. And so from there, we we started looking at other other food related inspiration for pairing these things together. Now, that's not to say we didn't just package together the same very chemically product. We actually did uh, work with a chemist to to create a more natural an actually more natural solution. Yeah, right. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to give too much away about the book because, of course, I think that everybody should go and check the book out for themselves because it isn't, it isn't a book that you just read. It's something that you take part in. But there was one particular touchy-feely in the book that really resonated with me on oh, a yeah? personal level. Yes. Okay, so I thought I would read it to you and then I will add my own – feely at the end. Okay. Okay. So here we go. Twist, tickle, too deep, massive build up, scrape, prod, pull, after shower routine. Wax is so peculiar. They say not to. Some shampoo, compaction, smells odd, weird. Did I touch my brain? (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love the additional one at the end. That's so good. <laughs> I actually have a cotton tip in front of me and I used one just before and I'm a little bit obsessed with making sure that my ears are clean. That's <laughs> one of my dirty little secrets, pardon the pun. <laughs> anyway, I think that um, it's super interesting because when I cleaned out my ear, 
just before, just earlier, I had noticed the sound more. So thinking about the cotton tip itself and then doing the action, I had noticed the sound, which often you don't really notice the sound. But uh, I'd always been told, you know, if you go too deep with one of those things, you'll end up touching your brain. And (laughs) Yeah, same here, same here. I'm not sure that you can actually touch your brain with a cotton tip. I mean, maybe. But <laughs> oh, I've tried and, and no, it's not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> but yeah, like, it, you know, it's it actually made me, there's a book that is something that I, I've always loved. It's called Perfume. It was made into a film hmm. a few years ago. It's quite an old book. It's definitely worth a, a read. It's a book all about a man who, amongst other things, makes perfumes mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I think I read it for the first time when I was about 16 and while I was reading it, I was hypersensitive to smell and even to this day I have a hypersensitive nose. I My sense of smell is very, very um, heightened. So, you know, I love thinking about things in this way because, well, I find that going through this as a framework actually makes my sense of design, if you like, heightened. So I'm thinking more about the actual touch and the feel of of what I'm trying to design for. Mm. It's quite interesting. Yeah, and that's great to hear because that that definitely was was my intent to try to start to build that empathy. And yeah, I <laughs> that one is is one of my favorites as well, the uh, the cotton swab because it it does start to to really bring to life or or to the surface this the universal feeling that we all have, I think, with that experience with that interaction, which is uncertainty, you know, a questionable use case, right? Questionable application. What what are those really for? You know, I mean, if we've all been told that it's dangerous, you don't want to go too deep. Well, <laughs> how are you supposed to clean appropriately then? You know, no one's really given the answer. So to me, that's a business opportunity. You know, if, if I'm a maker of those things and I want to really disrupt, like, hey, maybe you should start to think about you know, how people feel when they use that item. Yeah, well, again, this brings it back to that question of who were they really designing for when they were making those things? Right. Were they really for people or was it some kind of, you know, we think people need this so we'll design it for the business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we get complacent and we don't, we don't update that. But anyway, so tell me about why you decided to make a book out of this. What happened to make you want to go down a book path? Great question. I, uh, well, simply put, books are just fun. You know, it's a, it's just a fun end product, you know, that's fun to flip through. It's, I think designers too just really like books. So I was thinking about my audience as well. But before I even came to the conclusion to make it into a book, um, for the past two years, I've been piloting the concept of touchy-feely on on social media, on Instagram in particular. So over the last two years, you know, every few days or so, I would just post one illustration, one touchy, you know, with my feely, but then um, opening the dialogue up with a question, you know, what is your feely from this interaction? (laughs) And uh, throughout two years, I've gotten countless (laughs) responses that I've, you know, saved and essentially crowdsourced, you know, for inspiration for when I actually sat down and wrote the poems, the the feelies. So good. Was there a response that was the best response that you got? There was a lot of great ones. And 
And that, I, you know, I can't really think of one in particular, but the thing that I really did try to do by, well, I mean, another reason by crowdsourcing too was not only was it helping me write the narrative, the copy for the book, but it was also feeding into that inclusive design approach, right? So, because I, what I really didn't want to have happen was all of the feelies were coming from my point of view, because that would be, well, that would be going against the whole point of the book, right? So I, on each feely, on each poem, I tried to come at it from multiple viewpoints. And that probably was the most challenging part of writing this book, because I would read through these 100 poems each time and think, oh my gosh, what am I missing? Who am I missing? What point of view is missing from this context? Who would feel something completely different than me in this context? And that was starting to drive me a little mad after a while. <laughs> uh, but, but that crowdsourcing approach um, you know, over the past two years through Instagram that certainly helped in the process. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there's listeners who have thought about a, writing a book, particularly designers who have thought about writing a book. I know that I'm a designer who has definitely thought about writing a book, but I just have never gotten around to it. I'm using inverted commas right now with my fingers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you had any advice for people who were thinking about writing a book in that genre, what would you recommend? To make a plan. Make a plan just like we're taught for every design project, right? So you pull out your handy dandy calendar, make an outline, make a framework, you know, or, or actually I'll do that. And then I would say use the future casting approach, which is, okay, at the end of the day, what, in a perfect world, what do you want to make, right? What would you absolutely love to make or or write about? Um, And kind of put that as a stake in the ground and then uh, work backwards from there. So then you have to start asking yourself, well, in order to make that, what do I need to do? What are all the little steps? Because it's a, a long game, very much so. I mean, it's it's about patience and perseverance, and it's a lot of highs and lows of <laughs> of emotion. Yeah, absolutely. Were there any books that inspired you to do this? Definitely, actually, not necessarily inspired me to do touchy feely, but I would say probably subconsciously worked its way in as I was creating this book, which Dimitri Martin, he's a comedian and a writer, not a designer, but I always thought he would make such a great designer, design strategist. He's just so witty, so observant. He's written a few books and just the way he sees the world, it's very, it's very Seinfeld, right? It's like, it's funny because it's true kind of a thing, you know? And I think Seinfeld, watching Seinfeld reruns, um, yeah, I'm a huge Seinfeld uh, fan, nerd. And the brilliance of that show is just its simplicity in, in, in observing the world, the l- little things, the tiny little quirks of, of humanity and putting it up on the stage for all of us to look at, point at, laugh and say, oh my gosh, yes, that is so true. I didn't even think about it because it's just such a mundane, everyday thing. And that, that certainly inspired me. And uh, we will definitely post a list of all of the references that we've been talking about in this episode in the notes on the website. Just out of interest, I'm wondering, firstly, are you reading anything at the moment that's really inspiring you? And two, what do you think makes a really great design book? I am currently rereading The Power of Now. Mm. Have you read that one? 
Yes. Okay. And that that one is also one of my all-time favorite books and is also a book that you can just up and read at any at the drop of a hat and anywhere in the book and get inspired or just get back to that present moment. And uh, yeah, that, that book is just tremendous. And I think it has a lot to do with design too, you know, the power of now. It's, it's a spiritual book, which is all about, well, I don't want to butcher the what it's about in my interpretation, but if I had to say what it's about, it's, it's really about staying in the present moment. And in order to do that, we need to, as humans, suppress the ego and, and thinking about the past and the future. And in my opinion, in order to design something really special, really groundbreaking, really something that's really full of value and feeling, we need to do it in the present moment. Of course, we need to think about the past and learn from the past and, and look to the future, you know, and look at trends and how, you know, where things are, are, are coming to a head. But in, in the act of designing something, I think it needs to be done in the moment. So that book, The Power of Now, has certainly been a huge inspiration for me. And then to, to address your second question, uh, what makes for a really great design book? I would say the element of surprise. It's important to have a framework, lay it out, put it together. But I think going through this process myself on touchy-feely, something that I, I tried to, to build time into doing was kind of resetting, recalibrating, or walking away from it for a few days, a week or two, coming back and, and looking at it, trying to look at it with fresh eyes and and asking myself, okay, what is this really doing here? Is it really pulling at the heartstrings, striking chords, or is it just filler? You know, because you do get into a point in, in creating something where where you are kind of mid mid flight where you're you're doing it, but you're sometimes you might lose sight of what you're really trying to do and and you're just in the act of completing it. And so I think it's really important to revisit and, and really be super critical of what you're creating and asking yourself, will other people really enjoy this? Uh, and then, of course, asking <laughs> your friends and family, you know, you know, people that will tell you the truth. That's, uh, that's definitely words to think about. Uh, I went to a festival by David Lynch last weekend and, um, and I'm currently having a flick through Beyond the Beyond, a book about the f- music from his films and, um, and there was a lot about being present and transcend or meditation mm. and some very interesting topics that came out of that particular set of talks and uh, I think all these, you know, being present is very important to what we're doing. So... Firstly, I just want to know what's next, what's going to happen next for you? <laughs> That's something that I, I've been thinking about quite a bit. Uh, well, in the near term, I need to fulfill all of my book orders and, and actually get people their, their pre-ordered touchy-feely books. Um, so I have a lot of fulfillment. <laughs> tedious. The actual touchy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The very tedious job of, of fulfillment because we didn't end up going with uh, blurb. So Blurb does the fulfillment for you, but we're working with a, a small outfit in uh, Berkeley, California, who, who's a bookmaker. Uh, so I'll be doing that. But if if I muster up enough energy to create a sophomore album, if you will, I think it would it would be a specific touchy feely, right? So this first one is very it's a cross section throughout life, 
throughout the physical world. And and I think if I was to do another one, it would be, you know, a touchy feely kitchen or touchy feely hospital, right? So it would be very, yeah. very focused in, in that way. I can really dig even deeper. So that that's what I would if I had to predict, that would be my my approach for the next one. Um, I'm already looking forward to it. Uh, and before <laughs> we wrap up this episode, I've got three hard and fast questions for you. So okay. if there was one professional skill that you wish you were better at, what would it be? <laughs> that, is a, that is a tricky one. Uh, I think folder organization. <laughs> 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 because, oh my gosh, it's such a common thing. Like how do my folders get all jumbled? And why am I naming them so all over the place? Like, am I missing something? I think I just need to Google, like, how to properly organize your folders on your desktop. Uh, Maybe I'm revealing too much about my disorganization. That's okay. Once upon a time, I had 40,000 unopened emails in my inbox. (laughs) And one of my friends saw it and wigged out. Um, Okay. And then question two, Uh what is the one thing in the design industry that you wish you'd be able to get rid of? You know, it's it doesn't make any sense to to wish this, but consumerism, because oh. that is <laughs> how, I mean, you know, that's like biting the hand that feeds me. And that's why it's always so ironic, you know, and, and doesn't make any sense, because I'm talking here about human desirability, you know, creating creating things and experiences that people want more of. But at the same time, I do have this other side of me that tugs at at my heart saying, make something that people will be so happy with, they won't ever need to replace it. But that's a, that's a big feat. I thought you might say ego, but you know. Oh, well, (laughs) ah, you know, (laughs) you beat me me to it. Yes. Well, then my (laughs) follow-up would be ego. Definitely ego. That's a, I hate ego. And then finally, if there was one message that you could give to emerging human-centered designers for the future, what would it be? It would be to embrace life experiences beyond designy or designery ones, right? I think we as designers get so hyper-focused on looking for inspiration in the most obvious places, design blogs, you know, design museums, other designers, but it's not in my opinion, where the real value and inspiration lies. It's, it's in the everyday, it's in the non-designers. You know, it's in the, the disheveled life of some <laughs> poor guy. You know, I, it's in just talking to random people, you know, and going to random places where you won't find designers, you know, traditionally trained designers. So I think being open to all life experiences and really seeing it as tremendous value. Awesome. Well, I think there's something in that for everybody. So I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on the show. And I can't wait for Touchy Feely 2.0. Thank you, Chi. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Is HCD as much as I did. If you'd like to know more about Joey's work, visit www.behance.net backslash J-O-E-Y Z-E-L-E-D-O-N and if you'd like to get your hands on a copy of Touchy Feely, the book, visit www.joey-zeladon.myshopify.com 
We'd love to hear your feedback or thoughts on this episode and anything else HCD. To join the conversation, go to thisishcd.com and register to join our Slack channel where you can get in touch. We use our Slack channel to shape future episodes of the podcast as well as sharing interesting design-related content every day. We've also started a book review section and are actively looking for people to review design books. So if you've read a book recently or if you read touchy-feely, join up and tell us all about it. We'd love to potentially include the review in future podcasts. We're also actively looking for sponsorship for the podcast, with 100% of the money raised going directly to Caracare, an incredible NGO who helps support children who have suffered abuse. You can also donate by clicking on the dollar sign inside the media player on the thisishcd.com website. Thanks for listening to this episode of This Is HCD. I'm Chi Ryan. See you next time. Thank you.